Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by novelist Les Wood. His novel, Dark Side of the Moon, was published back in 2016 by Freight Books and sold out two print runs before Freight sadly went into administration and subsequently went bust. The novel is a crime caper concerning a group of Glasgow Neds who decide to set up a heist to steal the world's most famous diamond. Les has also had several short stories and poems published in various anthologies, including the Celtic View magazine, of which I was delighted to, to publish a short story, and he was also previously a winner of the Canongate Prize for New Writing. He has finished a second novel, Close to the Edge, which is currently wandering the wilds looking for a new publisher, and he has already started work on his third novel. In his day job, he teaches human physiology at Glasgow Caledonian University, using many crime stories to teach the students about the workings of the human body. Les is also a musician and plays in one of Scotland's top brass bands and has been a Scottish champion on 10 occasions. Les, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Now, that's an impressive bio, just a, a short description of some of the things you've done, obviously in your, your day job, but also as a writer as well. And, you know, the first thing I mentioned was the novel, Dark Side of the Moon, got really good reception. Obviously, people were buying it. The frustrating side of that is obviously when, you know, the publisher uh, disappears it kind of leaves you, you know, the novel just looking for a new home, as it were, I suppose. Aye, I mean, it was a bit frustrating and it's sad that Freight went under because Freight was a, a really fantastic Scottish publisher at the time and it was it was doing so well. So it was a shame when it kind of went belly up like that. And you're right, you know, you, you, you're kind of got that wee bit of excitement going, you've got a book out and it's, it feels fantastic. And then it just kind of runs into this brick wall where suddenly everything stops. You know, there's no publicity for it anymore. Who know? I had to get the rights back for the book as well, so reverting back to myself, and then it's just kind of in limbo after that. So you're back to square one. It's so hard to get anybody to publish your book in the first place. Um, so you're back to square one with that, and so it's aye, frustrating, I would say. I mean, I suppose again, just touching on, you know, I mentioned that the next novel that you've written, Close to the Edge, you know, that's looking for a publisher just now. But I mean, I suppose the good thing is, and again, if people are listening, especially people that maybe you know, trying to get a foothold in, into the world of writing is that it's obviously, it's not put you off. You've written a second novel, you're working on a third novel, and that's obviously just something that, going back a long way, it's just something you've always wanted to do. Aye, aye, definitely. I mean, and, and it's it's a kind of re-escape for me as well. You know, you just sort of, something that's away from your day job, something that's just, you can sit at night and sort of work away at these things. And I constantly carry around a notebook with me. So even when I'm, or when I was commuting into work, I kind of do that now, but when I was commuting into work, if something came to me, just, bang it down in the, in the notebook, write it up at night, that kind of thing. So it, it, I still still keep, want to keep doing it, definitely, even though there's, there's nothing happening with, with, with the that side of the moon at the moment. But I'm still putting out the new, the new one close to the edge. It's kind of, I've sent it around to a few publishers and things like that to see what comes back. And I've got a wee nibble of interest to, with that at the moment. So we'll see what happens. That's probably me jinxed it now by saying that. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of going, when you, when you mentioned there about the notebook, that's really, that's old school, because there'll be, there'll be younger listeners, will be, they take all their notes and phones, which I know, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of like you, I prefer pen and paper. Absolutely, or pencil and paper as well. I do, I, I can't even do the pen thing. I like to be able to rub it out as well. 
But uh, no, no, definitely a wee notebook, just a tiny wee pocketbook I've got in my rucksack for when I go into work. And if something comes to me, just get it out there and then rather than onto the phone. It's funny, when I started writing myself and, and trying to start writing novels, I found doing the very, very first draft, uh, just writing it in notebooks, was really helpful because when I actually went to transcribe it, I was already lately editing it, even before I, I would read through it, and I've always found that really helpful. No, I think you're right. I think doing it kind of handwritten, uh, and even writing out long passages, you know, um, in, in the notebook, when it comes to transcribing it and putting it into the, the word processor or whatever, you, you kind of edit it as you go. So you're already on that kind of second edit um, when you're actually doing it that way. But the editing process, I find that quite frustrating as well. You know, you're going back and over and over and over things and deciding what you're going to ditch and take out. When, when I did That Side of the Moon, I worked with this guy called Russell McLean, who's a, a crime writer, and he worked as a kind of editor with me. And he was telling me about things that, you know, this bit here really slows down the pace. Take this out. And it was stuff I really loved. You know, I said, I don't want to take this out. It's a really great bit. But I did. <laughs> what he said about it, he said, just write these wee bits off as extra short stories, like DVD extras. You have the director's cut plus your DVD extras afterwards uh, that you can, you know, related stories. So I, I, it's kind of useful to, to go through that first draft uh, and then work out what you are taking out. And it did make the book better. There's no doubt about it. When when it did when it did take that stuff out, it made it pacier and more coherent. I think. Because I think as well, I always think if you're you're lucky enough to get somebody who can do that, like cast their eye kind of dispassionately over your work. Because I, I I'm probably like you. There's a certain point where you've written something and you just think it's amazing, and you know it can't be better. There's nothing that can be taken out or changed, no. and you need somebody to just to read it and go, well, I would do this or that, and, and then at least make you think, not necessarily you have to change it, but make you think about it again. Russell McLean was really good, actually, because he he was quite flexible. You know, he'd make suggestions and things like that, but if you kind of pushed back a wee bit and I'd really like keep this because of this reason, he would say, yeah, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Okay, I think it's good to keep that in. But as I say, he was also just a really sharp eye over things, just sort of spotting things. And, and it really was about pace, spotting things that were just really dragging the story back and not allowing it to move forward. He, he was great at that. And Really good guy as well. I recommend these books as well, actually. Russell McLean, he's good. Yeah, and I suppose then with, with hindsight, when you see the reaction that Dark Side of the Moon gets when it is published, that kind of, I suppose, vindicates that whole process, isn't it? Uh, it does. I mean, I was lucky to get some good sort of press reviews for it, and there was a wee article even in the Daily Record um, about it where it was photographed up a, a dark alley somewhere in the centre of Glasgow just uh, to make it look like a gritty crime drama type thing. Um, so I was lucky to get those press reviews, and that's always dead exciting, you know, just when you see that, sort of, it's getting a good reaction from people. And the reviews in general were, were, were really good for it. Oh, fingers crossed it finds another home at some point. Aye, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, in terms of the, the podcast today, I uh, always like to take every guest back, kind of on the, the literary journey of their life. And then if I take, take you, first of all, right back to childhood and... It's your favourite book from childhood, and the book that you've chosen is The Saturdays by Elizabeth Enright. And what was it about that book that's made you choose that one? Um, I think this is the book that got me into reading, and it actually came from a, a thing. People in my generation, I don't know if they still do this or not, but people in my generation maybe remember a thing at school called the, the SRA Reading uh, Laboratory, it was called. I can remember um, because I, I'm of your generation. <laughs> you remember that thing? So it's a big uh, Absolutely, yeah. And it was all kind of colour-coded and you were assigned a kind of colour section in this box based on what your reading ability was like. I'm not quite sure how democratic it was. I think if you were down in the kind of crappy colours, it would maybe be harder to, to move forward through that. But you were, everybody was more or less assigned in the middle colours. And once you kind of completed that section, you moved on to another colour and so on. 
So there was a wee extract from this book uh, as one of the exercises in this SRE reading laboratory. And you had to read this little bit and then it was, I guess, a comprehension exercise with questions to ask, answer about it later on. But I read this, this wee extract uh, and the book is about these children who live in New York with their father in this big rambling house. And every weekend they pool their pocket money so that one person gets to use everybody's pocket money and they can do whatever they like with it. So they formed this club called the Independent Saturday Afternoon Adventure Club, Isaac. And then they, each of the children go off and do this, their separate thing. So this little extract in, in the SRA laboratory thing was um, just about one of the kids going into school, uh, sorry, going into New York and finding a dog, uh, a stray dog, and bringing it back. And I just thought, this is fantastic. This is really good. You know, New York was quite an exotic place. And when I was thinking about this, when you asked to, about the, what book to choose, I had in my mind that this was set in the 1950s. But I went back and, and I reread the book and it was actually published in 1941. So this was taking place in the 1930s, these kids going off into New York on their own. But to me, it was just a, it was a really kind of magical story. Uh, and so, yeah, from the, the thing in the, the SRA lab, I went to the library to see if this book was there, and it was. And I just read through the whole thing in a day, and it was just, it was fantastic. So it, it stuck with me ever since. It was the thing that made me realise that um, reading was an enjoyable thing. It could take you to different places. It could, like everybody, I guess, when they read, they first get into the reading bug, they realise this is what, what reading is all about. It takes you somewhere else. And so did you, the, the copy you said, you, you know, back in it to look, did you subsequently buy a copy as, as something just to remember I, your childhood? I actually bought it for my wife as a Christmas present. I've got it in front of me here. So I bought it, I wrote in the front cover, 2009. I bought it for a Christmas in 2009 and I wanted to see what she thought of it. And luckily she, she did enjoy it. And before this podcast, I went back and reread it again myself. And it does stand up. I mean, she's Elizabeth Henright, she's pretty clever in how she writes for, I would guess this was about for 10 or 11 year olds. She's pretty clever in that these little adventures that each of the children have, they meet different people. And with, when she meets, they meet these different people, they also have little stories. So there's also separate wee short stories within each of the children's uh, sections when they go into New York on their own. Because what I love about this, one of, this question in particular, and quite often with the, with the choices, and, and you and I are probably of a similar age, is that quite often the book that, that you choose is something that maybe you've got at school. And then it's tied into libraries as well, because you know one of my favourite books from childhood, it was a teacher who used to read it. And again... I then went and got the book out of the library and, and it's just that that way that that's how we probably discover books and consume books at the time because there wouldn't have been a massive amount of book buying. Uh, absolutely. There weren't a lot of books in our house when I was growing up. My, my granda used to read quite a bit. So there were books in his house, but um, in our own house, there wasn't really much. And it was the local library. It was just, it was fantastic. You know, I used to spend a lot of time in there going through books in the children's section and I discovered... I was also thinking about this as a favourite book from childhood, uh, a set of books by a guy called Willard Price, and they were the adventure series, so it was things like Volcano Adventure or South Sea Adventure, and I just went through these again one a week, and, and the library was just a fantastic place to go for that, and they were kind of enlightened librarians, this was a Fox Bar library in Paisley, there were, there were enlightened librarians there, and they gradually let me go into the adult section uh, and pick out some books from in there as well. Yeah, because they're obviously identifying you as, as a reader, they're almost like kind of subtly pushing you, pushing your reading on. I think so, and I think it's because I was in there all the time. You know, you had different tickets. You had a blue ticket if you were a child reader, and it was a red ticket if you were an adult reader. 
And I remember the librarian just saying, well, just use your blue ticket and you can go in to the adult section. Uh, and that was, again, I, I get into science fiction, you'll find out in one of my other choices. And going into the adult section was where I found loads and loads of science fiction books, which became my kind of addiction through my teenage years, I think. You mentioned the, that kind of SRA reading uh-huh. uh, laboratory thing. that uh, I loved that when I was at school, but I, I always remember uh, one of the times, I can't remember what day it was, it was an afternoon we would get the SRA books. And one of my friends, he brought in, remember the wee Commando comics that you used to oh, get? Yeah. It's like told stuff, stories from the Second World War. And he kind of dished them round. And what we did is we slipped the Commando comics inside our SRA books and we were all reading <laughs> these comics. But one of the, one of the boys stupidly did it with his back to the teacher so the teacher could see what he was reading. He was brought to the front of the class, and which is unforgivable in a classroom scene. He basically grasped the rest of us up. So we, we were all belted for, really? for doing this. Yeah, yeah. Belted for reading? A... Yeah, that was, your, that was your punishment. I also, and again, I've told this story before in, in the podcast, my favourite book from childhood is Master of Morgana, Alan Campbell MacLean. And that was the one where the teacher, this adventure story set in the Isle of Skye, and the teacher would read it yeah. every week, a chapter, and after about two or three weeks, I couldn't wait. So I went home, went to the library, got the book, read it that weekend. And it's just, it's still an incredible book. But I stupidly went in on the Monday and told everybody how the book finished. <laughs> and was be- yeah, and was belted for that as well. Oh, so man. really? Right. Thankfully, it never, I mean, I wasn't belted for reading the book. I was belted for spoiling it for everybody else, but thankfully, it never put me off reading. That's, was that Master of Morgana? Master of Morgana, yeah. Right, set in yeah. Sky. Okay, well, Sky's one of my favourite places, so I'll need to check that out, actually. I think that's a good thing, though, when you go back to read these books that you were interested in when you were wee, and they still stand up. I mean, I think sometimes you go back and look, some of them say, it's of its time, maybe, or it just is not as good as I remember it. But it's good when yeah. you go back and, and they do stand up. You mentioned about your love of science fiction, which takes us nicely on to the next category, which is a kind of teenage student formative years book. And the book that you've chosen is uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I, I, I was obsessed by this book and obsessed by the film as well. Um, I remember pleading, I was, I was really into science fiction, so I was into space um, a lot. And I remember pleading with my parents to take me to see 2001 uh, in the cinema. And it was at a time when, I don't know if you remember, it used to have continuous performances. So you would go in in the middle of the film yeah. And then watch it to the end and then start again from the beginning. Now, if there's any film not to go in in the middle and then sort of try and work out what the hell is going on, it's 2001. It's quite a confusing film as it is. But um, I was just blown away by the movie. And then I just saw in the bookshop, oh my God, there's a, there's a novelisation of this. There's a book version. So I got it. And actually, it helps explain what goes on in the film, especially the bit towards the end of the film. If you've, you've seen it, you'll know about the scene that's set in the hotel and he's wearing his spacesuit and things. It's extremely confusing. The book explains all that about what's going on with it, but I just, I just loved it, and I, I'd read more of Arthur C. Clarke. I just thought he was a, a tremendous writer. He's a kind of visionary in a way, and I loved that science fiction that is kind of credible. You know, it's not monsters or aliens or whatever. It's things that, yeah, this, this could happen. He's so good at writing about that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it has a basis in science. It is proper science fiction. So I kind of devoured all his books, and then. As I said earlier on, going into the, the Fox Bar Library and going into the adult section, I sought out all the science fiction books. And in fact, it was kind of easy because there used to be a publisher called uh, Golanx, I think that's how you pronounce it, who produced science fiction books. And they were always easy to spot because they, had these, they all had these bright yellow covers and bright yellow spines. So you knew exactly where they were in the library. 
So you could spot, or you could pick up books by Philip K. Dick or Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury or something like that. And so that was just, that was my go-to section in the library, just looking for these yellow spined books from Golank's sci-fi masterworks or something like that. I can't remember what they were called. It's funny when I was checking on uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey before the podcast, and I hadn't, I just always presumed that the book would have came before the film, but I hadn't realised that he worked with Stanley Kubrick on the book and they, and they kind of, they were both developed alongside each other. It's interesting because I think Stanley Kubrick had read a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel. It's a really clever idea that this alien civilization had seen humans evolving on Earth and had planted this thing buried on the moon um, with a kind of magnetic signal that said there's something here. So that as soon as man became technologically advanced enough to get to the moon and discovered this, if they dug it up, as soon as it was exposed to sunlight for the first time in millions of years, it sent off this signal that man had evolved to, to space travel. So Kubrick had, had read that story and said, I'm really interested in this uh, as a development for a science fiction film. And so I think he took Arthur C. Clarke across to the Chelsea Hotel in New York and he holed him up there for however many months just to write this story that the script was going to be based on. And I think the two of them worked on it together. They bounced ideas off each other. Arthur C. Clarke, he tells the story of that time in a, a book called The Lost Worlds of 2001, which is basically about him spending his time in New York and how he worked with Stanley Kubrick in developing this. Um, and I think the book's slightly different from the film in terms of how it was set, and I think that in terms of the space stuff, and I think that's because of the, the, the technical challenges of, of getting some of the planets and things like that in the, in the movie. They didn't have CGI back then. It was all models and stuff that was done in the camera. I've seen that film so many times. I've seen it more than any, anything else. I think it still stands up, you know, more than 50-odd years later. It's, it's still a fantastic film and fantastic to look at. I love the design of everything in that film. Because that must be great. I mean, as a writer, at any stage, you know, if somebody, a director, suddenly puts you up at a hotel in New York with a view of, of writing something, I mean, that's, you're not quite a prisoner, but I mean, that's a, that's a kind of dream commission, I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, I think Arthur C. Clarke was kind of bemused by it. I mean, he's, uh, I don't think he knew quite what to make of the, the whole thing that was going on with Stanley Kubrick. I think he liked him as a person, but I did think he, was, he thought he was a, a little bit odd in, in working with him. But yeah, I, I know, to be given that opportunity to do it, and, you know, I wouldn't say he made his name, because I think he was quite famous before that, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but I think it certainly boosted him by doing that. And did you read, I, I think there's, is there another three books in the... The yeah, there is. The rest of them. I think it was a lot of diminishing returns with them. And I'll be the, the second one, 2010, it was made into a film as well. It took away the thing I liked about 2001 is what he didn't, he didn't tell you. It was the mystery behind it about who was this alien civilization that planted this signal for humans. Uh, there was never any indication of what, who they were or what they were doing. The, the later books kind of took away that mystery and explained a little bit too much. So it kind of drew back the curtain a little bit. So I, I didn't really enjoy them as much. And I think sometimes it's a mistake to go back and revisit some of these things and take away that mystery. I think sometimes just don't tinker, just leave it. And in terms of the you know, science fiction, I take it that it's still a genre that you, you love reading? I, I do, and there's good Scottish science fiction writers as well. I mean, Ken McLeod and Ian Banks, who's sadly not here anymore. Ian Banks writes incredibly inventive science fiction stuff, mainly around this civilization he's created called the culture. If you've not read any of them, I would really recommend it. It's this kind of utopian culture in the far, far future. 
and you know, if I was if I ever wanted to live any in any civilization, I would pick the culture. It's, it's fantastic. But again, Ian Banks is incredibly inventive in his storylines. I really don't know where he come up with some of the the ideas for these things, and also really funny. I would say it's a sadly missed guy. He was, whenever he had a book signing, I always try to go along to to listen to him uh, reading. Uh, just a very engaging reader and a guy you wouldn't mind going down the pub with afterwards for a pint. Because it's funny, I am more familiar with his work as Ian Banks, but because I enjoyed that so much, I, I, I haven't read a, a massive amount of science fiction, but I did. I've read some of his books and I, I really enjoyed them. But the thing I always think, particularly for people who are maybe not uh, into science fiction as much as it's still a really good story. If you can just don't go in with any preconceived ideas, what he's actually telling is a really, it's a really still a really good novel, but it's just in that, that genre. And I think some of his, I really enjoyed some of his books. All the best science fiction touches and stuff that affects us, whether it's cultural or uh, social aspects of how we live our life or whatever. And I think a lot of the stuff that Ian Banks wrote certainly reflects on us as well, especially the book called The Player of Games, which a lot of stuff in that is, you know, what we do about, you know, for example, people who spend all their life online, for example, playing games all the time and, and, you know, what that does to them as individuals and what it does to their personalities and so on. And, And, you know, we're kind of getting to, to that aspect of it. I, d- I don't play computer games, but I know that, you know, people can live their life virtually rather than, than getting out and experiencing the real world. Yeah, because I was playing the games and the other one I remember was Use of Weapons. Did you like it? I, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it, yeah. I thought it had a, an incredibly interesting structure, that book, in that you've got two stories that are coming, one story starting at the end of the book, one story starting in the, the beginning of the book, and the two of them kind of pass each other midway through. And it's not till you get to the very end of the book that you realise what's been going on all the time. Because what I always found extraordinary about Ian Banks was how productive he was. I mean, it was, you know, I think it was at one, one year he would write a science fiction book and then one year a contemporary novel. And it was just, it was relentless. The, it wasn't just the fact that it was the, the quantity, it was the quality as well. Uh, and well, I think he said he was lucky that he used to spend six months writing and took six months off, which is what a fantastic luxury to be able to do something like that. And you're right, he did kind of alternate with the, the sci-fi stuff and these his inverted commas, his straight books, which I love as well. I mean, he's, he's my favourite writer. You know, I've got, I think, as I said, I went out to all his signings whenever I could. So I think I've got just every book he wrote, I've got them signed or whatever. Uh, I do remember there was a stage production of The Bridge once and he was interviewed afterwards and they asked, what did you think of that? And he said, well, I'm glad I read the book first. <laughs> so I don't think it was the, the most successful uh, adaptation for the stage. So... <laughs> Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy here, and my guest, Les Wood. And Les, we're on to your third book choice in the podcast, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone or everyone, and it's Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken Casey. I just I just love this book. I would say I'd recommend it to everyone because it's my favourite book, I think. But it's a book that if you'd asked me to come on this podcast maybe five or ten years ago, I would maybe have put this book into the one I would you couldn't pay me to read again uh, category. And the reason for that is I think I started this book about three or four times and I just really struggled with the first hundred pages or so of this book. And part of the reason for that is the way he writes it. I should say that the book is about um, a family of loggers in Oregon who are basically bursting a union strike. So there's a strike by these union guys who are trying to get some more money because they're working less because of mechanisation, I suppose, of the logging industry. 
and there's this family of independent loggers who um, are basically saying stuff it. We're just going to keep going with what we're doing. We, we're going to supply the trees to, to whoever needs it. So they're busting the strike. But the way he writes and the thing that makes it so difficult in the first hundred or so pages is that he changes point of view all the time. And he'll do that within a paragraph or within a sentence that you don't know who's, who, whose point of view we're we actually seeing here. And it's not until you get into the rhythm of that and how he's done it that you then become comfortable and you, you then kind of go along with the flow and it becomes easier, much, much easier to read after that first hundred pages or so. And it's quite a, an incredibly tricky thing he's done by doing this. As I say, within a paragraph, you can have four different points of view all at the same time and he never tells you who, the, who they are. He'll put them in brackets or he'll put them in italics or parentheses in some way or other and you have to work out for yourself, who is this that's, that's thinking this? Who, who's, whose point of view is this? And as I say, I started about three or four times. I said, this, this book's just terrible. But something always kind of drew me back to having a go at it again. And I think it's partly the kind of, some of his writing is incredibly poetic. If you get the chance to even read the first page of this book, where he describes the, a river running down from the mountains, it is just fantastic, fantastic writing. And the, the story itself is a kind of, there's a Cain and Abel aspect to it as well. Um, there's two, the two brothers in the family who kind of hate each other, well, stepbrothers, they kind of hate each other. And there's betrayals, and one of the brothers had slept with the other brother's mother, which is a kind of strange thing going on as well. So he'd, he'd slept with her, so that's why the other brother hates him. And he ends up sleeping with the first brother's wife to, for revenge. So there's all sorts of revenge stuff going on as well. I was curious of, you know, that way, because some people either... You either start a book and you'll, you'll finish it or you'll come back to it. But I was just curious the fact that you you gave it so many chances and didn't give yeah. up on it. Yeah, I know. And I'm, sure, I'm not sure why. I think it was the kind of challenge of the thing. You know, it was a determination to, to get through it and get to, the, get to the end. But I would recommend anybody who is reading it, if you get past the first hundred pages, it then becomes this big, sprawling, epic book. And I think it, it probably is a contender for the great American novel. It's way better than Cuckoo's Nest as a book. Yeah, because people, people will be familiar with him because of, of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which has obviously been a publishing phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think this is his masterpiece. Without a doubt. And the thing is, it's hard to get. It's, um, it's out of print now, I think. I have a really battered old copy on the bookshelf, and I'm, it's, it's fallen apart, so I tried to find a new copy, and I think I had to get, a, get it come from America or something like that to get a, another copy. But it is a, it's a Penguin Classics edition I've got for it now, which is a nice, fair copy, but it's, it's a big book, so it's seven or 800 pages. It's interesting you said, you know, that uh, get past the first 100 pages, because I found that with, I remember reading The Name of the Rose, and I always say that to people, that again, I mean, I love that book. And I do enjoy those first hundred pages, but something does click into place round about that, that stage. And then after that, it never stops. And I can understand why people would maybe give up before then. I think it's, it's just getting into the rhythm of the thing, I think. And it's quite good to read books that are a bit challenging like that as well. And don't get me wrong, I, I love reading a, a straightforward book as much as anybody. Um, and there are some writers that are just so good at, at, at sucking you into to stories just with the plain, good old-fashioned storytelling. But sometimes it is good to kind of make yourself work a wee bit harder just to, to get into the story. And I would definitely say sometimes a great notion is, is definitely worth the effort. It was also made into a film as well, actually. Paul Newman directed it and starred in it with him and Henry Fonda. The chance to watch it, it's, it's a pretty good adaptation of what's probably a difficult book to adapt, actually. Because I had the same, you know, that idea of going back to a book time and time again before we finished it. I had that with Crime and Punishment, where I, I just kept getting bogged down and... and 
but I knew people who kept raving about it and eventually I managed to push through and read it and I got to the end and unlike you with sometimes a great notion I thought well well that, that, that was that I was I'm not sure if I, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the effort. Uh, so I quite enjoyed that I, I, I'm not a very analytical reader I kind of read the story for the story and I don't look too much about what's going on around about it and I took Crime and Punishment as being kind of like um, an episode of Taggart, which is basically this detective trying to track down this guy, um, try to track him down. It's this kind of cat and mouse thing. I just, I just took it as a straightforward kind of detective story in a way. But I, it's a bit difficult to wade through it, I think, at times. But I quite enjoyed that. I tried doing some other Dostoevsky stuff. Uh, the idiot I quite enjoyed, but the brothers Karamazov, I just I had to stop with that one. Couldn't get through it. Right, well, I'll maybe have a go at sometimes a great notion. Or if I ever read Crime and Punishment again, I'll try and imagine the characters speaking like the actors <laughs> a tiger. There's been a murder. I would recommend giving sometimes a great notion a go. Well, we are on to your fourth book choice. Uh, it's a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And interestingly, well, two things. One is, like, you know, a lot of writers, it's difficult to choose a book that you dislike, but you know, you, you mentioned that you were a correspondent, you've, you know, you've given up on books that you really don't like before the end. You have picked one that you've read and really enjoyed, but you wouldn't go back to read again. Again, that's Ulysses by James Joy. Again, it's maybe a bit kind of pretentious to, to pick that because it's such a, a famous book. And it's, um, I kind of thought long and hard about actually picking this because I hope you don't ask me anything about it. Because as I said, I'm not a very analytical reader. And I think this is one book that you have to be kind of analytical about. I tend not to read prefaces to books. Um, I tend to just jump straight into the, the story. And I probably should have started with a preface to this book, which kind of explains a little bit of what's going on, about what's going on in it. So I came at it completely cold. And as you know, it's this kind of stream of consciousness book. And he's, he's trying out all sorts of different literary techniques in it, which I couldn't begin to understand some of them anyway. But um, I did, I really get submerged in it. It took me probably about three months to finish this book. And I did get submerged in it and almost kind of hypnotised by the language as you're going through it. I, I was lost in it a lot of the time. I just had no idea what was going on. I didn't know where I was or what was happening in the story. But the, the language still kind of kept you gripped and it kept you moving forward just to see what was happening and wanting to move forward. And there were some bits in it that were absolutely, I thought, were fantastic. But as equally, there were other bits where I just I couldn't get my head around what he was, he was doing at all in it. So I was kind of glad to get to the end of it. And I was glad to say I have read it, you know, and that's a kind of, again, setting yourself a challenge. Uh, and I like to sometimes go back to some of these classics and see what they're like. But I don't think I could go back and reread it. I've, I've looked at the first couple of bits, sections of the book again, and I just don't think I could really say I would want to set aside the time to do it again. It's funny, that's a book that a couple of times in the course of the, the podcast, a couple of people have chosen in that category, but they've right. chosen it because they have actively disliked it. I've, I've actually never read it. It's one of those books that I hope one day I'll get around to reading. I'm not sure if I will, but I'd like at some point to tackle it. I think that's why I, I tried it. I just wanted, you know, it's such a famous book. I wanted to just try it and see. Plus, it looked good in the train. When you're sitting with James Joyce, Ulysses, <laughs> makes you look <laughs> like an intellectual, <laughs> not realising that you don't know what is going on. No, I did enjoy it. I, I can absolutely see why folk would, would hate it. And I can absolutely see why, why folk would give up on it. But I, I did enjoy it. It's a kind of strange thing because I do tend to give up in books that I don't like. And when I was thinking about this category for the, for the books, 
um, I was wondering whether I should pick something. And I don't like to kind of diss another writer, you know, by saying, oh, that book was crap. I just didn't do it. I, I, what I tend not to like is books that are being too obviously writerly. I think where you're reading it and you think you're analysing what's been written. And I say, I'm not an analytical reader, but it, you suddenly find yourself thinking, oh, I see why they're writing in this particular way. Or, or, I see what they're trying to do here, rather than just telling the story that they're, they're being writerly. And if it's too obviously writerly, I just I, I don't like it. The one I did give up on was uh, The Golden House by Salman Rushdie. And I gave up on that for that reason, because I just I didn't think the story was going anywhere, but I just thought it was a bit too, as I say, writerly. And Jonathan France and The Corrections, I didn't like that book for the same reason. Because I always think as well, like, it, I always think it's interesting, readers quite often are in those two camps. There'll be some people who, once you pick a book up, you're going to finish it no matter what, and it becomes especially if you're not enjoying it, it must become an endurance test. I'm kind of like you, I always feel, if I pick something up, if I'm not enjoying it, I'll put it down, and I might go back to it and give it another two or three goes, and then maybe it's maybe not for me. I'll, I'd rather be reading something that I, I'm enjoying or I'm gripped by or it's intriguing rather than something that I'm actively disliking. I mean, I, I think I tend to finish most books I start because there's always something in it that's, that's maybe worthwhile reading. It's just if I'm getting bored by the, the, the way that the, the, the story's trying to progress or whatever, then I just think I could be spending my time doing something else. In terms of your time, actually, I, you know, I mentioned straight at the very start that you've written two novels, you're working on a third novel, but also touched on the fact that you, you work at Glasgow Caledonian University. If you've got a balance in terms of how you base your writing round, what will obviously be a full-on, quite demanding job? Aye, it, it can be hard. I mean, if I... You're right about it being full on and you're spending a lot of time even at night uh, working as well. So if I can, I'll spend time at night doing a wee bit or at the weekend. But what I, I've done by writing the last two books, in fact, is I've tried to book a, a, away some time away. I've I got a wee cottage up north somewhere. I'll just book a holiday. I'll take some annual leave, book a wee cottage, and I'll just take a laptop and I'll just go and do two or three thousand words a day for a week or ten days and just get the words down in the page that way so there's no distractions. I'll take the dog with me, go for dog walks and things like that as well, but no other distractions, just sitting in this wee place, just kind of battering out the words. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do something like that. That Um, sounds like a great idea. It is good. Dark Side of the Moon, I I, I wrote a lot of that um, on Sky, in fact, uh, a wee cottage by, it's owned by two great people, Morag and Hector Nicholson in Sconser and Sky. I think I spent maybe two, three, maybe even four different holidays up there uh, just battering out that book. It was good, just time to yourself. I just went on my own. My wife was happy enough for me to go, which was great as well. And just to say two or three thousand words a day, you can come back with 25, 30,000 words already done. And then you can then follow that up with, with other stuff that you do in your spare time when you're back here. Yeah, because getting that, that time, I think you're right. I, I've, I've kind of changed my writing habits because what I was finding is coming home at night and I was either dozing in front of the TV and I didn't have the same energy at night to start sitting down and, and so nights would pass and then I would start thinking I should be working on my own writing. Yeah, that's right. But I'm a morning person so rather than getting up at seven, I get up at six now and then write till half seven. Once I'm up, I'm awake and just even the process of writing, even if it's a thousand words that I'll, I know I'll bin later on, it's just that the rest of the day I'm thinking, well, I've already done my own writing and I, yeah, anything yeah. else I do is a real bonus. No, I'd like to be able to do that. I'm not a morning person, unfortunately. I'm a kind of night person. <laughs> so I, I would do it at the other end. You know, I would, I'd maybe sit down later on at night and just, uh, even if, as you say, a couple of hundred words, just getting some stuff down. 
I would say over the last wee while, because of all the COVID situation, that's kind of gone for a button, really, because you're just knackered at night, and it's easy just to sit down in front of the telly and just switch yourself off, or even just do a wee bit of reading, rather than sort of fire up the laptop. Yeah, and, and then I was going to ask you, in terms of, you've obviously got your work, your writing, your reading, and then again, I touched on the fact that you're, you're a musician as well, and play in one of Scotland's top brass bands. What instrument is, do you play? And again, how does that fit in round? That, that can be a big uh, damage to your time management. Uh, I play in the Kirk and Tillock brass band, so it's, it's, it is one of Scotland's top brass bands, and it's, I've been lucky enough to, to win lots of competitions and played in you know, fantastic venues around Britain and around Europe as well. Um, but that is a, a huge drain in your time. And at any normal time, you'd be going out rehearsing at least two, two nights a week. And if you're running up to a big competition, you're out every night for two weeks at least. Uh, and that is every single night you're out rehearsing just to, to get it as good as it can be. So because it is a good band, um, there is an intense commitment. And if you're not willing to give that commitment, um, then there's no point in, in being in it. But it does take away your time for writing uh, as well, absolutely. But I must say, I did, I did write a wee story relating to brass bands as well. So there is a, an in-house brass band magazine called The British Bandsman, which I think uh, actually featured once in, uh, in News For You as one of the kind of odd publications. That they have. <laughs> so they, they asked if I wanted to write a wee short story for them. So I wrote a wee Christmas short story for that once. So it, it, did, it did help my writing in one way. And, and what instrument is it you play? Oh, sorry, I, I played a cornet. Right. Cornet and a trumpet. And is that something that you've done for a lot of years then, I think? Yeah, a long, long time. I started, uh, I started when I was 10 years old at school. So um, that's 50 years ago now. So it's uh, a long time. And I'm kind of addicted to it. I couldn't, couldn't even give it up. My wife's desperate for me to hang up my mouthpiece, I think, um, because of the commitment. But I miss it. And, and right now, we, we can't have rehearsals just now. We can't play. So we're having virtual rehearsals online via Zoom and things like that. And it's, it's not the same. It's, it's not quite the right way to do it. Uh, so I'm desperate to get back and just uh, the sound you get when you're in a rehearsal room and the band is playing at its best, it's just, it just raises the hairs in the back of your neck. It's, it's fantastic. And I suppose after, as you say, after 50 odd years of playing, it's, it's not something that you, you would be able to give up easily anyway? No, well, I've got a problem with my teeth at the moment, actually. Um, I've, got, I've damaged one of my teeth and I can't really get to a dentist to fix it. So that's kind of hindering my playing. And I think if anything is going to make me hang up my mouthpiece, it's going to be uh, my teeth. So the decision might be made for me. <laughs> well, in terms of the, the podcast, we're on to the last question, the last book choice, and that's either the last book you read or are currently reading. So you've kind of given me one for each, and the book that you're currently reading is Mayflies by Andrew O'Hagan, and the book that you've most recently read is a non-fiction book by Stephen Rupp called Seafarers, A Journey Among Birds. If we start with that one first, what was it about, about that book that, that you enjoyed? Uh, well, my wife gave me it as a birthday present. Partly because she knows I'm really interested in birds. Um, I, I like bird watching, and I spent a lot of time during the lockdown uh, just photographing the birds that come into the feeders in the back garden. So I, I'm really interested in birds. Um, so st- this guy Stephen Rutt, he kind of gave up his job uh, in London just to to go and work in a bird sanctuary up in Orkney or Shetland, I think it was actually. And he just sort of dropped out and became. I get the impression he was maybe a little bit of a loner anyway. Um, but he went to work in these, these bird reserves um, in the Scottish islands. And so he's written this book, which is basically each chapter takes a different seabird. And he talks about the life of these birds and how both they've shaped the landscape and how the landscape shapes them and their habitat and so on. And the, the second reason for, for, for reading it was that a lot of the, the places that he visits is places we've been to on holiday uh, and going for looking at birds and things like that as well. 
Um, so it was kind of revisiting places that we know and love well. But um, incredibly interesting in book. I, I tend not to read a lot of non-fiction. That I, fiction is my go-to thing. But this was this was enjoyable just because it is two things that, that interest me, sort of landscape and, and birds. And uh, you mentioned the book that you're currently reading. Andrew Hagen, I'm a, our father's, his novel is one of my favourite Scottish novels. Uh, so I haven't got around to, to reading Mayflies yet. You're in the process of reading that. How, how's that going? Uh, it's good. I'm enjoying it so far. I'm about a third of the way through. I'm reading it on my Kindle, so I can tell you I'm about 30% through. Um, and it's the first book I've read by Andrew Hagen. I've not read anything else by him. So I'm maybe, what was the one you said there? That uh, you our Father's. Our Father's, right. Uh, no, this one's it's it's going well so far because it's kind of stuff that resonates with me and it's about music and it's about friendship, two things that are really important to me. So it's concerning this bunch of guys, I think from Irvine, who at the stage I'm at in the book just now are going down to Manchester for a music festival. So it's the Smiths and things like that. In fact, they actually bump into the Smiths. That's a bit of just read at the moment as they bump into the Smiths in a Rolls Royce, actually. I'm not quite sure whether that would be the case with the Smiths or not, but anyway, that's how it comes across in the book. So that kind of stuff is right up my street. I love all that kind of thing. If it's anything to do with music um, and friendship as well. So it's so far, it's good. Uh, and I quite like the style of his writing, the kind of banter between the guys. It's kind of maybe slightly unrealistic in terms of, I'm not sure this is how these blokes would speak to each other, but it is really funny and it's really kind of, just they're, they're talking to each other about films as well. That's, that's something else is they, they're kind of obsessed by movies. So there's lots of movie references in it that they batter back and forwards between each other. So it's just like kind of how I would be with my own pals in a way. I mean, you mentioned you're, you're reading the book on the Kindle. Are you, are you quite happy to switch between the physical book and the e-reader? I much prefer physical books, but I kind of running out of bookshelf space uh, in a way. I don't mind. The book's the book. I quite like to have the physical book. I like the feel of a book and I like the ruffle of the pages and the smell. The Kindle is a bit more, you're a bit more detached from it. But it is good for telling you how far you've got to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I genuinely find out I only really use the Kindle if I'm on holiday. Because quite often, rather than taking a suitcase full of books and, and, and nothing to wear, I just put a lot of books on Kindle and read, read yeah. them. I would imagine most readers and certainly writers would you prefer that physical book that you can you say you can touch and it's part of the whole experience of reading uh no i think so and it's maybe the way you talked about it earlier on it's maybe been brought up younger folk now i say this as a, a really old guy but you know they, they, they read books on their phone not even on the kindle and they're much much more used to using electronic devices for for reading than, than we are and it's you know they're, they're using ipads and their, their laptops all the time i think we were brought up with a physical book in your hand and that to me is what a book is I tried once reading a book on my phone and I didn't like, I ended up reading the book as a physical book and it was a great, it was a great book, but I just, I didn't like the experience, the, the, just that small screen, it just, it just didn't seem right. Nah, my eyesight's not good enough to, to read it on the phone for a start. In a way, it doesn't feel like a book either. It, it's bad enough in the Kindle, but on a phone, it's just tiny wee device, it just doesn't feel, I wouldn't feel right with that. I suppose, I mean, I, I, again, it's just something that's kind of, it's a thread through all the podcasts. Some people will read the physical book, some people the Kindle, some people will even use audio books. I suppose it's ultimately, as long as people are reading, that's really the main thing, I suppose. I've not really done the audio book thing. My, my mother-in-law is registered blind and she reads a lot of audio books. So we kind of help download them. She actually uses her Kindle to um, download the audio books onto that. So we do, we do it for her. Um, but I've not actually sat down and, and listened to them. The last one we did was Bernard McClaverty. 
downloaded for our midwinter break. That's it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that as a as a book. Um, yeah, so I'm quite interested. To, I'm quite interested to hear how it's done, having read it, and then maybe read, uh, listen to the to the audio book of it. So that's maybe something I'll do. But I thought that was a, a fantastic book. Really, really great. In terms of the podcast, we are, we're almost at the end of the podcast. I, again, right at the very start in the introduction, I'd mentioned that you are, at the moment you're working on, on your third novel and I take it you're hoping at some point that all the lockdown measures will ease so that you can book a, a wee cottage away to, to batter well, it. I absolutely. Um, it's kind of stalled I mean, at the moment just because of work pressures, I guess. But we, we did manage to get away a wee bit on holiday in, in the summer there. So I made a wee bit of progress on it, which was, was good. But I'm not even sure if I'm maybe about 15,000, 20,000 words into it just now, something like that. Excellent. Well, well listen, we'll keep our fingers crossed. We mentioned already Dark Side of the Moon, but also Close to the Edge, which is, we'll hopefully find a publisher as well in the not too distant future. But um, Les, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. If anybody wants to check out Les's book choices, you go to my website, com, and each guest has an individual page, and I just list the book choices under the various categories but it's been it's been really good chatting to you uh, well, about and you as well. well thanks very much for having me on because it's really enjoyed the, the, the experience it was great thanks for listening to the read all about it podcast and i'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via twitter at read all about 20 on instagram at read all about it podcast or you can send an email to read all about it at paulcuddehy.com if you've enjoyed the podcast subscribe leave a review and spread the word if you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.